Hi, my name is Ruth and I'm a vicar in Battersea, London. I love to hear about other people's lives and what makes them tick. For this podcast, Life and Faith Today, I've gathered a group of people from the area to share their stories. My thanks to Anna, Tom, Patricia and Oji for being open and keeping it real. We chat together after listening to each interview. It's as simple as that. Enjoy the ride. Tom, um, now I know you're a doctor, um, but, and I know you're married to Izzy, uh, but actually that's about all I know about you. Tell us a bit about yourself. <laughs> this is going to make for an interesting conversation then, Ruth. <laughs> you're right, I, I am a doctor. I, I trained as a clinical radiologist before leaving frontline clinical care delivery just over four and a half years ago in order to change some of the things that I struggled with as a doctor within the NHS and healthcare more generally. So I've been uh, involved in medical technology ever since leaving and uh, now I'm the chief executive of my very own company which are doing some pretty exciting things within healthcare um, with a, a product called Bleeper which the best way of describing it is a, a clinical version of WhatsApp, essentially, just giving teams the ability to talk about cases securely, safely, in all the way that you just couldn't do when I was training. Wow. Okay. So uh, a bit different from uh, hands-on with your patients. It's very different, um, but just as rewarding which was the thing that I always worried about when I was leaving clinical practice, particularly when you've committed such a large portion of your life to training for a profession, to then step away from that to take on something entirely different is, is always quite nerve-wracking. And I think, as most clinicians will tell you, that the most valuable thing about the job is spending time with patients. And you know that when you step aside from that, you are turning your your back on that element of it and you'll you'll miss it. Um, but I think one of the things that I've really found is that I can make a big difference both to my colleagues, my, my ex-colleagues, and, and also to, to patients um, through doing this, this sort of thing. And actually, it's important to have doctors on the other side of the fence building the technology that doctors use. Otherwise, it never works. So we've, we've made... understand. So, you know, and understand what's needed. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I, I think it's been a great privilege to be able to work on projects like this during COVID when actually companies like mine have made a massive difference to frontline care delivery, both for patients and doctors. And I mean, we, we've actually had clinicians, uh, we've supported clinicians to work remotely and not even have to see colleagues and patients, particularly those who have health problems themselves. And I, I think this is something that came to light for me personally, is that doctors get ill too we're not invulnerable and uh, and as do nurses and physios and all of the allied professionals on the front line and it's important to give them the right tools so that they're not exposed to this virus and it's been really nice to be able to do that mm, sounds fantastic um so so i'm just wondering do you have a faith would you would you say you were a christian i would say that i have a faith but i don't have a religion so I'm, I would describe myself as Christian, but I wouldn't say I belong to any particular domination or 
um, nor do I attend church regularly. But ha haven't actually since uh, I was at university. Okay. And so how would you describe that? You know, you've described yourself as Christian, but not in some senses active, would you say? In that sense, you've got the faith, but it's... Yeah, so I would say, uh, for me, faith is quite a, a personal journey. Um, it's something that I have have always had as a sort of key component of my life. It's informed a lot of my decisions. Uh, and it's also one of the things that day to day as a doctor, you, you are constantly uh, appraising, especially in light of patients dying, people suffering. It's um, you're really at the sort of cold face of it. So you do test your faith during that. And then on the flip side of that, you have no time. So you, you can't, attend regular um religious services um and when you do have time it often doesn't fall nicely on a sunday morning so i think partly because of my my clinical rotations and then also partly because of my own personal views on on faith i i sort of fell out of the practice of going regularly but my faith never left me and uh, i think is something that to this very day is, is a very central part of, of who i am and I've always been slightly introverted about it. It's always been a, a more of a personal journey than a than an external facing thing. I would, um, in fact, I, I always do. I have a little prayer book at the side of my bed that I read every night just before going to bed. Um, but it's just a it's a very reflective thing for me, um, and I I do feel a very strong connection through that. Mm. And. Tell us, you know, you started talking a little bit about having this faith right from early, early on. So perhaps you'd like to tell us a bit about your childhood and, and, and how that faith, in a sense, was nurtured or framed. Yes. So, so I, I grew up in the Church of England um, in Wokingham. I had a, a very regular attendance at church growing up. Um, my parents were heavily involved in the church. My, my father was a church warden. My mum uh, ran some of the Sunday school services for, for children. So I, I was kind of raised in a, in a Christian faith. Um, I think my, my reflections on faith changed very much as I grew up. I think as a, as a teenager, I, I wrestled with it quite a lot. Um, I'm a scientist fundamentally, so I like to evidence and evaluate everything and trying to rationalize a, a faith-based question using a scientific approach uh, is, is, well, impossible, frankly. And I realized about the age of 16, that actually I was asking the wrong sort of questions and that really faith only really deals with why and science only really deals with how although if you ask a scientist many scientists will say that they're when they're asking how they think they're asking why but in fact <laughs> they are only asking how and yeah. science will only ever be able to tell us how something occurred not not why it did and I actually don't think that faith particularly tries to address how something has happened <laughs> only why so you're brought up in this faith it's a private faith it's 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 a constant in your life and as by the sounds of it has helped you what would you say is the hardest thing you've ever had to face in your life the hardest thing I've ever had to face um I think 
the first time as a junior doctor that I had a patient die was a pretty intense period for me. Um, I think a feeling of a slight feeling of helplessness that when you see them slipping away and you can't do anything for them. Um, and I think the first time that you actually have to go as a junior doctor to certify that someone is dead, and particularly if you knew that patient before, and there was this one patient that always stuck with me, a lovely old lady who I had seen only an hour before and then was asked to certify an hour later. Mm-hmm. And I remember just looking at her thinking, every atom in your body is still exactly as it was when I left you an hour ago, but yet there's now you're not here anymore physically everything is here um but yet you are somewhere else and it was it was a very uh thought-provoking and 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 quite challenging thing but um yeah I, i think it was uh it actually solidified my faith rather than challenging it if that makes sense yeah um and the, the scientist in me always rationalized that uh, there had to be something that, there that was that it was no longer and that wasn't something physical and when certainly I remember at university during my uh, anatomy dissection work when you're trying to understand the human brain and what, what it is and what it is actually as an entity that makes you human but my conclusion was that the brain is a is a very complicated circuit board but it can't possibly generate the number of spontaneous outputs that would make you, you, or me, me. It, there almost has to be an external control of that circuit board, much like a computer. Like a computer has hundreds of thousands of output states, but it can't generate them automatically. It needs an external input. And it's only when you put a human being behind a computer that it really drives in the way that it, it, it can. Obviously, we have artificial intelligence on the way that's probably going to blow that hypothesis out of the water. <laughs> but um, for the time being, you still it need sounds to... at the moment. <laughs> yeah, it sounds at the minute. Yeah. Scientists are always revising their theories. So, <laughs> Absolutely. And that's the, by very nature of what they do, I think. So it sounds like that shaped you, that experience shaped you quite considerably. How would you say COVID and, and the whole COVID time has been for you? I mean, you've got a company. Was there anything going on there that was difficult? Yeah, yes. I mean, where to start with COVID? I mean, it COVID has been, in in some respects, actually an opportunity for my company in that we are trying to help and support healthcare services. So it was a natural time for us to really embed the product and try to take it forwards. And in that regard, as I said earlier, it was, it was a real privilege to be able to work with the NHS during this time of crisis and to really help. But then internally, we've had to completely change our working practice. Everyone had to become remote and losing that direct contact with your colleagues is is difficult. We also had to understand that some of our team have young children and therefore they have additional burdens on them beyond just the work and therefore trying to create a more flexible working environment that's supportive of them. But I think we all kind of took those in our strides where we are a tech company after all. So I think we've we've adjusted quite, quite well to it. I think the things that I have struggled with more uh, and again this comes slightly from my clinical background in that you're always you're always taught and trained to remove yourself from the situation slightly and then to analyze it from a dispassionate perspective and trying to rationalize COVID and the impact I was seeing on patients my community everything that was happening around me 
it just what it showed me was the depth of the inequality that exists in our society and just the artificial nature of that and how it's completely incoherent to me that someone who lives in a, a tower block can have a completely different exposure to this virus and uh, a completely different nature of support and vulnerability to someone who lives just around the corner in a multi-million pound house and it, this is this is the stark reality of what you see in London where literally people do live in those situations one street apart and the difference in their experience of this is um it's just harrowing um, my, my wife, Izzy, actually runs uh, an initiative called Power to Connect, where she's been trying to get devices out into the community to support families who don't have access to them. And it's just blew my mind that, that 6,000 families, so 10,000 plus young people, don't have devices. And this is in London, one of the, the richest cities in one of the richest countries in the world. It's, it's just, I can't understand it. Well, the, the, the whole term digital poverty has become well known yes. from COVID. Uh, it was there before. Yeah, absolutely. In that regard, I think COVID has been a good thing for us. I think it's showing a light on some rather uncomfortable areas that we have to take accountability of and work together to try and resolve. And would you say that your faith has helped you with with the you know, the fear that might have come about, you know, your your staff and were you going to be able to keep the company going and things like that. Do you think that your faith has helped, hindered you? Yes, uh, I, I think my faith has helped because I think it helps me to, uh, it's like a bit of a safe harbour from it. And when I'd like to step back from things and reflect on them, it just gives me somewhere else to go. Um, and a different lens from which to view it on, which is which is helpful. I feel always that things are not going according to a plan because I don't really believe in fate like that. But I understand that we're all mortal and therefore everything is kind of in that sort of um, context, just transient. And therefore, if you're the sort of person like me who actually can just live in the present moment, actually you try not to worry too much about what has been or what's coming you just try to adapt for the moment and try to get what you can from it do you think that it gives you your, your faith gives you hope for the future yeah I, very much so but i think the thing that really gives me hope for the future is uh, is people for all the inequality i've seen i've seen some amazing acts of humanity and compassion that I think is a very real reflection of God's being in this world in the here and now. You know, I think we are capable of helping ourselves out of these situations, many of which we've actually created ourselves. The, the great social inequality that we're seeing is of our own creation. It's not God's creation. And therefore, we have the tools to fix it if we want to. And I, I think the other thing that I've seen during this time with things like Black Lives Matter and also the focus on sustainability is that the generations coming through now from certainly my generation down, the world we want is different and the, the old ways will will have to make way one way or another. <laughs> yes, there's a, there's a determination to bring change in. Yeah. No, not the status quo in that sense. There is. 
I, I think one of the things that I, I have seen that I think is um, quite powerful is that I think young people are becoming, partly because they've had to connect remotely, that they are actually beginning to become a more cohesive voice and that that is going to allow them to create the sort of change that they want to going forwards. And one of the things I've struggled with most during this time is actually seeing that those who have and those who have not are becoming ever more divided. And if you're in a privileged position to have ownership, be that ownership of a house or ownership of shares or ownership of a pension or something like that, the value of what you own has largely increased over this time, broadly speaking. But those who are never fortunate enough to have ownership of anything have been left behind. And the the growth in this division is is, is really quite troubling. Yeah. Well, Tom, thank you so much for your time and uh, look forward to chatting more. Hey, guys, was there anything there that you thought, oh, interesting? There's lots of things that I thought were interesting. I think you covered quite a lot. It's interesting what you said about um, your experience of seeing um, your first patient die. My mum is a nurse and she had a similar experience. I think she'd just become a Christian around that time. And she she said the difference between seeing a live body and then, then a dead body and and that that, that real sense of, there being a very something very different about it and and how you know that sense of there being like a spirit having left like the soul or, um yeah, yeah that's yeah. interesting but i don't really know how to describe it other than other than that really it's um it's a bizarre thing mm. uh, especially when you're as i was um i was 21 at the time so it was very young to have that kind of exposure to that sort of thing when you feel partially responsible for it. <laughs> well, I was thinking of the power to connect link because Anna's school has definitely had some of their uh, computers and laptops given to the oh. children there. Oh, good. Uh, and uh, I don't know about Patricia, but I know it's schools in Wandsworth have mm. um, had them. So that there are all these sort of connections within connections, even though we didn't know each other before. It's amazing, really. I, I hope you've had um, a good share of laptops. Yeah, I mean, we've had more recently as, as well. I think um, we've had, a, a, you know, people have been very generous. So, yeah, all of our families now have them. Oh, that's, um, that's fantastic. Yeah, it's yeah, really good. Really good. Because I think that, you know, your point about the... Um, the inequality and, and the experiences of different people, you know, during COVID. Obviously, it's the same COVID, but I think I was talking to someone the other day and we were talking about how actually to socially distance is, is a privilege because there are lots of people and, and families who where that's not, you know, there is lots of communities that are very tightly together and our families we can have one laptop, but they might have lots and lots of children and, you know, all doing their online learning. They can't sit down and, and do live lessons because all of the children in the family can't do that because they've only got one laptop. And, you know, that experience yeah, yeah. is very different for them. Um, yeah, I think it's a, it's a massive issue. I'm, I'm also really quite interested in how we support young people into the workplace post all this as well. And... Um, we've taken on a couple of people actually through this kickstart program the government have done but 
we're only a small company we can only do so much and i think yeah there needs to be a more of a, a national policy around how we support young people in but it's amazing to see how quickly they just pick up these laptops and run with them i mean i've I'm not that old, but even I struggle with some of this stuff now. And yeah, these guys are just straight on it. Yeah. I was quite intrigued that, you know, the whole social equality thing, was that not visible in your hospital, you know, as a doctor? I think in some regards, health is a great leveller. You, you see people at their most vulnerable. Mm. It really matter what background they've come in from when they're ill they're all coming to you in a very similar sort of format what what is different interestingly is the the people that come with the patient and the support that they come with and that interestingly is something that cuts across all social groups so i i think yes for sure certainly when you're coming to discharge patients and you're looking at what sort of support they have at home what sort of environment they're going to be going back to definitely but in that acute sort of A&E setting, actually, all patients from whatever walk of life, they're all the same. I thought you were saying acute, but were there sort of illnesses, diseases that were more prevalent in certain classes or does it, it or just does their lifestyle? I suppose it does affect their health, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it does. does and it? Yeah. You do see you do see different diseases presenting in different populations. But the other um, thing you see a lot of is that um, for a whole multitude of reasons, people from lower socioeconomic groups tend to present later with worse disease. And that, that was one of the, the hardest things. And I, I think it's a, it's a very under-addressed area in our sort of health policy is how do we, is it a matter of engagement? Is it a matter of information? What is it that's um, causing people to present later? Is it men are particularly bad I would say that's about being vulnerable and mm. men are supposed to be this strong. So if you're presenting to a doctor, then suddenly you're not strong. You know, this is your role. And Because like we said, the, the man's meant to be there to protect and they're meant to be the stronger. They've got this macho image they have to live up to. So this is the older men or do you think that's still the case for younger? I think the younger men can't be bothered unless they're they can't really be bothered with my stomach. Whoever to say to me, Mum, I need to book an appointment, then it must be quite serious. They don't, they haven't got a clue of where to start. Yeah. But it means it would be serious. But with the younger generation, they don't really, they don't really feel the need as well. I'm worried about at the minute, particularly with men, is even those who are willing to acknowledge physical ailments are very unlikely to acknowledge any sort of mental health issues. Mental. And I think coming out, out of the back of COVID and everyone being in lockdown, I think a lot of men are going to suffer in silence. And yeah. I think it's very difficult. Um, so give them, a, give them a prod and send them. <laughs> On the mental side as well, culturally, I think from my thing, for me as Blacks, I'd say I'm diabetic. And um, I remember early days, the doctor was saying, oh, you might be, you might be um, a, a bit of mild depression. I'm like, I don't do depression. We don't, we don't, we don't do depression. You have mm. your ups and you have your downs. Mm. But I don't believe in that's, it might be to do with culture as well. Because I don't, I know there is, there is depression. It mm. does happen. 
But you, 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 you kind of within your culture, you work. No, we don't. We can't be doing depression. There are days you'll be happy, and there are days you'll be sad. But it can't really be depression. It's got, not going to lead you to suicidal thoughts. Or but it can't be labelled, and it can't be can't in, in that, that sense. It can't be dealt with. They are saying that there are a lot of children that are are going to be affected by this COVID thing. And, oh yeah, definitely. And actually, it's, it, it's it's when people say get back to school and get their learning up they somehow don't seem to take into consideration that there are mental health issues that need to almost be addressed first. There are quite a lot. It's knowing how to go about seeking that mental, going, knowing the signs as well. Mm. Well, especially for children, I think it's very difficult. I think what they need to, I think what happens is, you know, there's a big push about learning, learning, learning. But if a child is not settled, they're not going to learn anything because as an adult, if you're not settled, you're not going to be able to concentrate. So I think yeah. they really need to skip this term up to, and just resettle them and let's just do some fun things, some fun yeah. things to do. And also the parents too are under, you know, would have been under enormous stress. And as you were saying, Anna, that some of them don't have the technology and some of them have been trying, attempting this on their phones. You know, mm-hmm. when, when it all drops out and then there's a stress of not being able to connect. So the, the relief for a lot of parents to get their children into school. But then there are some that do not want to send their children to school because of the risk of COVID. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah. So it's, a, it's, it's a, messy, isn't it? Yeah. I, I wonder, you know, like we're talking about life and faith, whether whether faith actually helps families or it just is stressful, whatever. I don't know how to explain it, but there is something there that you're like, I'm, well, I'm, we're going to get through this. I'm going to get through this somehow. And you have faith that you will get through it. Yeah, it can give you a different perspective, doesn't it? I think it. Um, I think my faith is similar to Tom's in that I would call myself a Christian, but I don't go to, well, I haven't gone to church for the last year anyway because of COVID, but I struggle with some elements of the, like the religion. But yeah, I think having a faith in God and I think it kind of helps you to see things through a different lens and can when when things are really horrible and chaotic here on earth or in your life I feel like it can lift you it can you know lift your eyes up yeah it's quite interesting we're talking about us here but then also thinking about children and mental health and things like that because there's been a real dip in going to church and I don't think I don't like religion so it's not just me, but how do the children of today, if they're not attending in some shape or form, how do they learn about God? How do they get that framework which helps support them through hard times? Because I'm wondering if my kids were, well, in the church at the moment, I don't know whether, well, right, with our church, St. Saviour's, there's a Sunday school for kids, but that's online. Yes, at the moment, yeah. And that's for much younger kids than say yours yeah you, we still have like assembly assemblies and re lessons obviously online as well but um, but Anna you're you're in a church school that's true well I don't think if you don't go to a church school, you would learn about religion but I don't, it's obviously not in the same way as not in the same way probably not no. as faith what's your school like Patricia or schools like I think families have become quite fragmented and I think successive social policies have fragmented families quite a lot and so there's not that cohesion 
or continuation between generations and that kind of community thing. And so it gets quite fragmented. So church doesn't form those places of worship that people had to gather are no longer seen as central. As soon as you bought in, Sunday trading, mm. that was the beginning. And for someone who doesn't class themselves as a Christian, you know, you look at these markers. And so some families are no longer that cohesive. And so the religious aspect, it seems to me, it's just like a lesson in school, unless you go to, you know, it's not taught in that kind of whole way. It's just tick, you can tick that one off. Mm -hmm. And actually, you know, hopefully, and, and it won't be every church, but hopefully it is more you know what we're articulating is that it's not the religion it's the relationship with god it's mm. the the trust in god that helps us and that's what seems to be massively missing yeah. anyway i'm going to draw this to a close um much as i'd like to carry on fascinating uh, mm. chat thank you very much for your time and, uh, Thank you, you Tom. That week. was really interesting. Thank you.